you haven't got a chance to turn there yet, let me encourage you to do so as we'll uh, flesh out the rest of that story. Uh, But as you're turning there, I wanted to confess something to you. I wanted to confess um, something real and true in my life. I wonder if it's true in your life as well. Uh, And that is that sometimes I wish that the prosperity gospel was true. I really do. I mean, there are moments in my life when, uh, when times are hard, when struggles abound, when anxiety comes upon me, when kids are sick for months, and uh, maybe in your life facing financial struggles, work problems, this, that, or the other. They're like, man, I would just love for that to be true, that just a little boost of faith, just an extra step of faith, just an extra donation, an extra gift this way or that way would like all of a sudden make all of these earthly problems real. And, and to be honest with you, I feel like a lot of times when you get to these couple stories, you, we hear that kind of application uh, to, to these stories, that kind of takeaway that Jesus will provide abundantly for you 12 baskets full left over. You just need to trust him. And that Jesus is going to calm the storms of all, all the storms of your life, and you just need to trust him in, in the midst of it. And while that's true in this situation, and while that has been true in many of our earthly situations, that's not always true. For there were plenty of other mountainsides full of hungry people that Jesus didn't provide for, and there were plenty of other storms that Jesus didn't still and pe- uh, people that he didn't save in the, in the midst of, but there's got to be something more to these stories than, than just uh, earthly, temporary, prosperity, gospel-like application to that. But that's my confession. But I think in this story, one of the main truths that we're going to see in this is is what I've entitled this sermon, the only prophet worth worshiping. That we're going to see that Jesus really is the only prophet, and I use that word specifically uh, in this passage, and you may have heard it, and if not, you'll you'll realize why, but Jesus is the only prophet worth worshiping. Now, we can consider some of the other world religions that have prophets. Uh, We could think of Islam and how Muhammad is one of the prophets that they look up to, even the highest prophet. But Muslims would never worship Muhammad. They worship Allah, uh, and they honor Muhammad, but they worship uh, Allah, and yet In Christianity, Jesus is the prophet that God predicted and promised would come, but he's so much more than that. He's the only prophet uh, of all the prophets in God's Word that is worthy of our worship because he's more than a prophet. And that's what we see in these couple miracles. He's, again, revealing his identity, revealing that he is God, revealing that he's specifically the Son of God. Uh, yes, he is the prophet. 
Yes, he is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament to be the king. Yes, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to be the, the great high priest, but, but he is those things. He, he's more than those things. He's God. He's the Son of God, and he's worthy of our worship. And that's what these passages uh, help us to see. In John chapter 6, uh, the Apostle John, who's writing this passage, really fast-forwards like six months to a year ahead uh, as we go from an unknown feast in chapter 5 to a known feast in the Passover in John chapter 6. Uh, not only that, but Jesus has gone from the south in Jerusalem back again all the way up to the north in Galilee and is on the eastern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And so some time has elapsed from John chapter 5 after he healed the lame man that was at the pool of Bethesda. And the Jews and the religious leaders were seeking him out to persecute and to kill him. And he spoke to them in that moment saying, I and my Father are one. I'm equal with God the Father as God the Son. I do what the Father tells me to do. I say what the Father tells me to say. He's given me life and He's given me judgment. So believe and receive me and have life because there's a time coming uh, when I will return to judge. And Jesus laid forth multiple witnesses to prove that this was true as predicted from the Old Testament. Uh, John the Baptist, his own works, God the Father, the Scriptures, and even Moses at the end of John chapter 5. And the Apostle then uh, fast-forwards those maybe six months to the Feast of Passover and and gives us these two stories at the beginning of John chapter 6 before he gives us a a long, uh, really rich uh, discourse known as the bread of life discourse, where we find our, our first I am. But it's these two miracles that really set the stage for that coming bread of life discourse. And so we want to look at these two stories this morning. Uh, in addition to the, the, the title being this major truth that we're going to realize today, that Jesus is the only prophet worth worshiping, that's true because as we're going to see here, Jesus is the only provider of eternal needs, and He's the only Savior with eternal life. And it's those two uh, parts of that that we're going to break up our, our story into this morning in the two different miracles. Jesus is the only provider of eternal needs and the only Savior with eternal life. And so in verses 1 through 15, you can note that Jesus provides and satisfies. And while on the surface, it may look like he's providing temporal and earthly needs, I think that we're going to get a glimpse at the fact that that's just a a picture of what he's able to provide for in our eternal needs. So look in John chapter 6. Again, after this, after What I described to you coming from John chapter 5, Jesus uh, went away 
to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the other side would have been the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. You can read this story. In fact, this story is uh, the only miracle that's actually told in all four of, of the Gospels. Uh, and, and while I'm not preaching Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I'm preaching through the Gospel of John, some of that other info helps us to know what was happening here. And, and, and Jesus was, had gotten on a boat, actually, and traveled across the Sea of Galilee while all of the other people walked all the way around. And, and Jesus made it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. That'll be referenced uh, later. Uh, the Sea of Tiberias uh, is what people during uh, the time when the Apostle John was writing this would have known the Sea of Galilee as. Um, it, it was named after Tiberius himself. Uh, Herod Antipas named the, a city after that. The sea became known as that. So John is cluing his readers into, much later after the time of Jesus, into the fact that they're talking about the same sea. That's why there's two names here. In fact, in the Old Testament, it would have been known as the, the, the Sea of Kinnereth, which was, uh, it, it meant the musical instrument call, called the lyre because the Sea of Galilee was in the shape of that. So this one body of water throughout the history of Israel has multiple different names, and John's cluing his readers into a, a couple of those. And this large crowd that had followed him, of course, they were going by land while he had gone by sea. They were following him, John says, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They're wanting to see more. They're wanting to see him heal more. They're wanting to see him uh, provide more. Uh, and so they're following him. And you can imagine as they're following um, from maybe from Jerusalem up to Galilee and all the way around Galilee, as they're walking and they're following Jesus, people are saying, what, do, what are y'all doing? What are y'all fo- why are y'all traveling this way? We're, we're following Jesus. He's healing people. He's, oh, I want to see. And so more and more all along the way to the point where they get this large crowd that is later numbered 5,000 men. And Jesus, it says in verse 3, he went up on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And again, this is just one of many uh, opportunities that Jesus, though there was a crowd of people that wanted to hear him and see him and interact with him, Jesus saw the importance of getting away, spending time with his heavenly Father, spending time with a few to be able to rest, uh, to replenish, to pray, uh, to be encouraged, to encourage one another before ministering to others. And that's important for us to remember as not only pastors and elders, even deacons that are serving in our church, but for us as members. We uh, and as Christians, you need time daily to get away, to rest, to be alone with the Father. You need extended times uh, throughout, the, throughout the year uh, to be able to spend with the Lord that you might better be able to minister to those in your own family, in your own home, and those here at this church, your own neighbors, your own uh, co-workers, and different things like that. 
Jesus modeled this so well. This is just one of the times when He did that. John's describing this. He's not commanding us to do this, but it would be wise for us to do so for our Savior and Lord did so as well. And then John gives us this great detail and, and clue regarding the time of, uh, of this story. In verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Uh, the Passover, of course, speaking of that Old Testament moment in, in the history of Israel when Israel had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years after the time of Joseph uh, and, and were being persecuted in the midst of that place. Uh, and yet God heard the cries of His people. He raised up a deliverer in Moses to go and to deliver God's people through signs and wonders in Egypt um, against all of their false gods in that place. And the last sign being uh, uh, the killing of the firstborn son of which Israel was saved and protected, uh, even provided for in that moment when God commanded them rather than their firstborn son being killed like what happened to all in Egypt. They were to take a lamb and to kill that lamb and to take its blood uh, as a sign and a remembrance and to put it on the doorposts uh, of their house so that when the, the angel of death came across Egypt, uh, the homes that had the blood of the lamb over the doors were uh, their children, their sons would not be killed. The angel would pass over, uh, if you will, and their families would be saved. And that's exactly what happened. God saved the families of Israel. Uh, and not only that, that was what spurred the people of Israel to, um, and specifically Pharaoh, to send out the people of Israel to get out of Egypt. That's what spurred the people of Egypt to provide for Israel and to give all kinds of things to the nation of Israel to provide for their journey along the way. And they went out from there um, eventually to the edge of the Red Sea where they worried that Egypt would come back upon them. And yet God mightily saved them and delivered them through the Red Sea uh, to get to the other side and to watch the seas come crashing down on all of the people of Egypt. The Passover, uh, that meal that was eaten and commanded to be eaten year after year, was to be a, a, a meal of remembrance. It was to be a, uh, a meal of testimony telling the next generation of God's provision and of God's salvation uh, for the people of Israel. And it, it was one that was to be remembered year after year, one that was even eaten during the time of Jesus. And the Apostle John is cluing us in and saying, it's that day. It's that moment. It, it's Passover when people are to be remembering that story, that story of God's provision, that story of God's deliverance through the, the help and leadership of, of Moses. It's that kind of moment. And so we have to have that in the back of our mind. I think verse 4 clues us into the eternal 
aspects of this passage and this story rather than just skipping over it and looking at the temporal aspects uh, of this story. So keep that in the back of your mind. But in verse 5, the Apostle John continues telling this story of which he was a part of and, and witnessed himself. And he says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, uh-oh, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And then you read verse 6, John cluing us in on a little bit more of the details, something that he probably found out later, but he's letting us know uh, as we're reading this story that Jesus actually said this to him, for he himself knew what he would do. He said this to test him. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with Jesus asking questions or doing certain things to put you to the test? Let me be clear. Not to tempt you to sin, for the Lord does not tempt. The brother of Jesus, James himself, says that we're not tempted by the Lord, but each of us is tempted by our own evil desire. Um, the Lord does not tempt us, but here Jesus is saying that he asked that question to test him, to see what, what he would do. And it reminds me of the people of Israel. It reminds me of all of the, the tests and the moments that God brought before them to see, hey, would you trust me now? You know, even just thinking about getting to the edge of the Red Sea after God had protected them through all of the ten plagues on Egypt, especially the last one, after God had provided for them um, by the people of Egypt giving them all of this gold and silver and jewelry and food and this, that, or the other uh, for their journey. They get to the edge of the Red Sea, and here's the test. They got, you know, God brings them to the edge of that to test them to see, will you trust me in that moment? Uh, brings them through the Red Sea, three days without water. Uh, God brings them to that moment. Are you going to trust me? I'm testing you. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to turn to me to let me be your provider, to let me be your protector and your Savior and your deliverer in these moments? The people of Israel were often tested by the Lord to see if they would trust Him and to grow their faith and trust in Him. Jesus is testing uh, Philip here by asking him this question, where are we to buy bread uh, for, uh, so that these people may eat? And then Philip responds, sadly, uh, if this is a pass-fail test, he most definitely failed. Uh, this was below 70 uh, I don't think it's even a 69. It's like much further down the ranking of that. Uh, for he answers with numbers. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. A, a denarii was like a day's wage. 200 days wages would not pay for this crowd to get a a bite, a, a little. And just imagine as we later will come and break a piece of bread off of this larger cracker here. And, and Philip's saying, you wouldn't even get a communion cracker 
with 200 denarii uh, for all of these people that are here. That's, that's important. But, but doesn't Philip's response really get to our response oftentimes when we get to that point of testing? When we get to that moment in life or that question in our, in our mind from the Lord, when we look horizontally and physically and we look at our wallets and our bank accounts and we start bringing numbers. Uh, Lord, I don't, have enough, I don't have enough numbers. And even if I did use all of my numbers, it wouldn't even be enough to do, to do this. And, and we start doing math equations, uh, strength equations, <laughs> uh, healing equations. They're like, this, that, or the other. We start making earthly excuses when, when the Lord is really asking, will you trust me? Um, seeking the Lord, yes, for earthly provision, and yet trusting that He's already provided eternal provision in His very own presence with us who are in Christ. He's provided His presence with us. He's provided eternal provision for us, even if we don't experience earthly provision in that. Oh, so much to learn just from Philip's, uh, the question that Jesus gave to Philip and the answer that Philip gave. I, I think if we were to consider the questions and the moments of testing in those pass and fail tests, we would probably have a lot more F's than, than, than P's uh, on our report card uh, in life. But might it be that, that after seeing Christ and His provision and His salvation in this story, we would be encouraged to walk by faith and have many more P's than F's as we are tested ourselves in the, in the hours or the days or the weeks ahead. And so Philip fails, um, but another disciple comes uh, into the story. In verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, again, if this is a pass-fail test, I'm going to give him an F, but I'm, if it were a number test, maybe a 69. Because um, he at least is bringing forth what they have available uh, at that time. It's interesting, the Apostle John is the only one mentions that the boy has this. And it was funny with uh, several brothers this week considering the, what's actually happening here. Did the disciples go out and see this boy with his sack lunch in his Spider-Man you know, case, you know, or see this guy with his lunch and uh, go take it from that kid, you know? Uh, we're not told like so many other times when this story is preached that this young boy came and gave this great gift, his little bit that he had to the Lord Jesus. We're not told that. I don't want to infer that onto the story. Uh, that's an option. That's a possibility. Did Jesus take the lunch from the boy? You know, it, it's just interesting to think about. It doesn't really, John doesn't really focus on that, but all we really find out is that Andrew, who is constantly bringing people to Jesus uh, in the Gospels, is speaking up and saying, there's a little boy who's got a lunch. And if you want to take it from him, if you want to use it, uh, 
But, but what is that for so many? Even he goes to a math equation, five loaves and two fish. But what is that enough? Five plus two is uh, seven with 5,000, so 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 15,000. So 15,000 divided by seven. We're going to have to cut these loaves and these fish up. And this is what I do. I did it this morning. A cake of blueberry muffin pan bread. How many, whatever it is, how many do I have to cut it up into for seven people? Where do I need to make my lines? I think through this as a father all, all the time. This is, the, this is what uh, I fall into, what Andrew is falling into. 5,000, and we've got five loaves. Uh, it's interesting. There's a story in 2 Kings where Elisha uh, is, is, it tells people, you can go read about this. Let's see, 2 Kings 4, uh, similar story, but uh, 100 men and 20 loaves. And uh, they say, go and feed them. And they come back and say, there wouldn't be enough. And he says, go and feed them. And they, were, they ate to their fill and were satisfied. A hundred men with 20 loaves. Yet here we've got 5,000 men and five loaves. And so, again, being put to the test, Philip and Andrew both fail. But Jesus did this to, to prove a point. And so Jesus said to him in verse 10, have the people sit down. And so you can imagine the disciples being sent out. We're told in the other Gospels that they have them sit down in hundreds and fifties. So they're sitting these people in groups. And you imagine what are the people at? Like, why are we sitting down? What are we doing? What's going to happen? And Jesus told us to sit you down. So sit down and you know the rest. Wait until he, wait until he comes. Uh, so he has them sit down. Uh, the men sat down. There are about 5,000 in number. Like I said, potentially fifteen to 20,000 people on this hillside, including women and children. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus provides everything that these people need. Now, now let's go back to that verse 4 comment. He's not simply just providing a meal for them simply because they're hungry, though they are that. They're hungry. It's the end of the day, according to the other Gospels. They've been following him around. Uh, yeah, they're hungry, but it's more than that. It's the Passover. The time has come for the Passover meal, and Jesus is looking for a way to provide for them a way to eat something in remembrance of the Lord's provision for them of, in, of old in, in the book of Exodus. He's looking to provide for them a meal that they could celebrate the Lord's deliverance for them. This would have been an act 
of worship. And so what Jesus is really doing here is providing what they need while they're away from their homes, having traveled to follow Jesus. He's providing a meal for them to be able to worship. He's providing bread for them to be able to eat with one another and remember the Lord's provision in Egypt, to remember the Lord's deliverance out of Egypt. The Lord Jesus provides everything that we need to be able to worship Him. This is the reality of what Jesus is doing. For like I said, there's plenty of more people that are hungry. There are plenty other hillsides full of people that Jesus didn't provide for. He's providing for this group of people to celebrate the Passover. He paused to give thanks for the bread that they had been given. Um, He spreads it out. He passes it out. Yeah, there's plenty of childlike questions that we continue to have as adults. How did he do this? Was it, you know, in a, in a basket, you know, lid on, lid off, you know, lid on, empty, lid off, full? Was it ripping bread that just never, like an extended long loaf, just that every time you ripped? There, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Uh, you can ask the Lord Jesus when you get to heaven if you want to use your one question uh, on that. But John doesn't really focus on that. What he really focuses uh, on is that the Lord not only provides, but he abundantly satisfies them. Not only does he just provide a little, a, a communion uh, bite of bread for these people just to, to worship, like, like your sorry pastor is going to do for you today, provide a, a little edge of a cracker to remember Christ's sacrifice. Jesus provided a, an abundance for them to eat bread and, and to eat fish. Uh, you can think back even to the, the, the time of Israel when God provided abundantly for His people. Um, not only uh, before they were to leave Egypt, but after they went through the Red Sea, did not the Lord provide for His people bread in the wilderness every single day? Um, and double that on the, the day before the Sabbath that they would have enough to be able to worship the Lord even on the Sabbath? Were, were there not stories of Jesus, of the Lord God Himself providing so abundantly that the Bible says, I love this, that they had quail coming out their noses? You know that feeling, you know, after... Thanksgiving or, you know, some meal that you've eaten, you're like, I can't, I literally, I can't even swallow another. Like that type of feeling in the wilderness when they had been, you know, provided for, but the Lord not only provided what they needed, but abundantly satisfied them that there were leftovers for them to eat quail for months after that, that it was coming out their noses. This is the the type of picture that Jesus, these People should have had in the back of their mind that kind of, that kind of picture. And, and maybe some of, them, some of them did because in verse 15, 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. Not a prophet. The capital P 
prophet, in our English at least, who is come into the world. They recognize that Jesus uh, was the promised prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18 that we've referenced several times where God told Moses that there would be another like you, Moses, whom I will send and I will put my words in his mouth and it is to him that you shall listen and I will require it of you. In Deuteronomy 18, um, where God makes that, that promise, these people recognize that Jesus is that prophet. These people recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the, uh, the one who was to come. The sad thing is, is that they desired then to uh, respond in verse 15 by taking him to be their king. Look, where, where it says, perceiving then, this is speaking of Jesus, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so their recognition of Jesus as a prophet, and, and just by the way, we just finished chapter 5 where the Jews and religious leaders in Jerusalem did not recognize Jesus as the prophet that Moses promised would be coming. And now the Apostle John fast forwards six months and puts this story smack right after John chapter 5 to show a difference. They recognize him as the prophet, but their desire in that moment is to take Jesus and to make them not this object of worship, this king of kings and lord of lords, this uh, eternal king of an eternal kingdom and worship him. They wanted to make him their earthly king. And they wanted to take him back uh, to Jerusalem, take him back and establish him as as a king who would overthrow the rulers uh, that had been put up uh, from Rome in that place. And so you can see at, at the different times, be, because of uh, a certain belief that these people had, that their response then, sadly, was not worship, um, but was uh, one to set up Jesus as an earthly ruler, uh, to bring about earthly good, to bring about earthly justice. And while we may say that that is a you know, first century temptation and problem of the Jews, let me just warn us that as Christians, it is not our job to set up, uh, to, to, to live as Christians, to simply bring about earthly justice, to simply bring about social change, to simply build ourselves a Christian nation. As much as we want to serve and to see uh, God's kingdom come and his will be done, it's not going to happen uh, in the form of a earthly Christian nation, especially uh, not in the trajectory that we're going. Jesus came to establish an earthly, uh, an eternal kingdom, not an earthly one. We have to make sure that we are um, living righteously, proclaiming the gospel, meeting earthly needs so that we can point people to Christ. Um, yes, serving in our cities and serving in our states and serving in our nations in different ways and in different places, 
but all to point people to an eternal king and an eternal kingdom um, to give us opportunities and open doors to be able to proclaim the gospel, uh, not just physical good for people, but eternal good. Again, I think that's the difference between the way we often read a passage like this and, and what Jesus is really trying to get across. That Jesus, uh, yes, He provides and satisfies earthly in different times and in different ways. Um, but the reality is, is we're all going to die. We're all going to uh, find our strength lacking at some point while on this earth. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the only provider of our eternal needs. And Jesus provides and He abundantly satisfies those eternal needs by giving Himself up on the cross. His own body, which is referenced as later on in John chapter 6, the bread of life. He gives Himself as the eternal, true bread of heaven so that our eternal need uh, of sin and death will be met for Jesus took our sin upon Himself. He took our place on the cross. He took our death upon Himself. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, offering us His righteousness so that we could stand before God eternally, offering us His eternal life so that we could enjoy fellowship with Him forever in heaven. Jesus not only provides and satisfies earthly our earthly needs, but He provides and He satisfies in our eternal needs as well. Which brings us to this second short little story. Uh, this second story always follows the uh, feeding of the 5,000 and Matthew uh, and Mark at least. Luke doesn't mention this one like Luke does mention with the others, the feeding of the 5,000. And again, these other um, gospel accounts give us additional, not contradictory, but always additional details into the same event uh, and, and telling it in a similar way. And it says that when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. In fact, the other gospels say that Jesus sent them across uh, himself, and he himself went up onto the mountain. And so at the end of the day, after this uh, um, ad hoc Passover meal in verses 1 through 15, Jesus sends his disciples from the east side of the Sea of Galilee back to the west, back towards the, the city of Capernaum, uh, where the official was from whom Jesus earlier healed his son, even from a distance from there. And they're going now across the sea. And John mentions the details that he himself experienced as they were on the sea in that boat. He tells us that it was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them like they may have expected him to as Jesus had sent them across thinking, okay, he'll get in another boat. He'll come across a little bit later and He's Jesus. Maybe he'll catch us. Uh, he had not come to them at that point. And, and then in verse 18, it says that the sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing, as happened to from time to time, according to 
the, the accounts of uh, geography and history in this place because of the mountains and the, uh, the low elevation of this of the Sea of Galilee there. And when they had rowed, the Bible says in verse 19, about three or four miles, they saw Jesus on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. The other gospel accounts uh, help us understand the reason they were frightened is because though John is saying it was Jesus, at first they thought it was a ghost is the best description that that, uh, we can translate this into. Uh, They saw a figure walking on the water, and they were afraid. They were frightened uh, at that point, not knowing what to do. And not only that, but it was coming towards them. And it was in that moment, in that fear, uh, in the, the midst of the unknown, with the waves crashing in the middle of the sea, having rowed three to four miles, being exhausted in the midst of the sea, thinking they were likely going to, to, to drown, not make it all the way across. The boat would capsize this, that, or the other. It's in that moment that in verse 20, but he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. This is what uh, John focuses on, the identity of Jesus in that moment. The identity uh, of Jesus. The other Gospels will go on to say uh, that when Jesus said, it is I, uh, and they recognized that it was Jesus, uh, Peter said, if it's you, Lord, let me come out to you. And, and Peter gets out and walks for a few moments, but then he fails his test in that moment of, of trusting the Lord and begins to sink as he takes his eyes off the Lord. But John doesn't tell us that. Nor does John tell us what the other gospel writers say, that, that when Jesus gets into the boat, the winds immediately cease and the storm calms and everything changes. John doesn't tell us that. John, John simply focuses on the identity of Jesus. When Jesus calms them and says, when he doesn't calm the sea, but he calms their hearts by saying, it is I. Or you could literally translate that, I am. Uh, Of which is really the precursor to the seven declarative I am statements of Jesus. um, Referencing the fact that He is God. Uh, The name that God gave uh, of himself to Moses all the way back in Exodus 3 when Moses said, who should I say him is sending us? And God said, I am who I am. And so this is the first uh, uh, of what, what's going to be unveiled in way more detail. Jesus in that moment preparing their hearts for this discourse that is to come saying on the sea, I am. I am. Do not be frightened. Do not be afraid. Literally, like the tense of the verb, like we saw earlier, when Jesus said, sin no more to the the man who was healed in in chapter 5, literally stop sinning. Jesus here uh, says, do not be afraid. Literally, stop being afraid. Be at peace. Be calm. And, And... The Apostle John 
what he wants to get across is not that, that Peter wanted to get out of the boat, not that the storm was stilled in that moment, though it says they were glad to take him into the boat in that moment. But what John notes is that immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. So for John, the miracle is that Jesus is walking on water, but that they made it across the sea with the Lord, with the Lord's help. And it's, it's, we've got to consider again, why did John put these two stories here? Why did he put these two stories together? Why did he put these two stories after John chapter 5? where the Jews and religious leaders did not recognize that what Moses was writing about was actually about Jesus. Why did the Apostle John put the feeding of the 5,000 with the bread and providing and satisfying them there um, right next to Jesus walking here on the water? Jesus for your notes, preserving and saving these disciples through this sea. Why did he put these together? I think with this bookend of Moses there at the end of chapter 5 and a later in John chapter 6 bringing Moses back up uh, for in this discourse, they'll say that Moses gave them bread from heaven. And Jesus will say, no, it actually wasn't Moses. It was the Lord through Moses who gave you bread from heaven. It was not Moses who delivered you through the Red Sea. It was the Lord who delivered you through the Red Sea with the help of Moses. I think the Apostle John, in the midst of those bookends about Moses, is giving us these two stories back to back to, to show us that Jesus is the pro better provider and better satisfier. And that even more than that, that Jesus is the better preserver and savior than even Moses. That Jesus here has provided at the Passover uh, both bread for the people to worship and salvation through the sea for these disciples, that they would be able to continue worshiping Christ, following Christ obeying Christ uh, for, for a time to come into the future. When you take these stories back to back and you put them in context of where the Apostle John is, is putting them, when you consider, yes, Jesus has uh, both provided and saved uh, for the, the disciples and the, this crowd that was there, earthly needs, uh, he's provided by showing who He is uh, for their eternal needs. By revealing who He is and what He was going to do, He's provided for their eternal life. So the Apostle John is really setting the stage for this discourse that is to come. But the people are not going to understand. In fact, after this stilling of the storm and Jesus walking on the water in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6 and verse 51, it says that when he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded, as they should be. 
But they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves that their hearts were hardened. As if Mark, writing, I think, for the Apostle Peter, is saying that there was more to the loaves than just the loaves. There was more to the walking on the sea and the deliverance through the sea than just a cool trick. Jesus was saying, I'm the only prophet that is worth worshiping. Don't set me up as just a trite, trivial, earthly king. Set me up as your eternal king of an eternal kingdom that is to come. Worship me. Worship me for I've provided all your uh, eternal needs. I've provided eternal life for you. Jesus is worthy of our worship because Jesus is better. He's better than Moses who provided bread for the people, though it was the Lord that really gave it in the wilderness, the bread from heaven. Jesus is better than Moses who delivered God's people through the Red Sea, though it was the Lord who did that. Jesus is better than Moses, who was a prophet, and all of the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, for he was the prophet whom God promised would come, who would have his words in him. Jesus is a better king than even King David, who was promised that uh, a king would come from his earthly line that would set up an eternal kingdom. Jesus is a better priest than all of the priests of the Old Testament, for he alone was a priest who, not, who didn't just kill and sacrifice a lamb that was given to him, but a priest who gave his own life as the Lamb of God for the sins of the people. Jesus is better than all of those pictures that we have in the Old Testament. And so when I come to a story like this, it's so easy for me to just look horizontally and, and say, oh, Lord, would you, with the little bit that I have, provide for my earthly physical needs? And, and I'm not, I don't want you to leave this place thinking it would be wrong to, to pray for those things. For the, for the Lord and, and God's Word, guide us to pray for everything that we need and to ask for those things, but to realize that even if that thing we pray for is not given to us, if, if the 5,000 are not fed, if the storm is not stilled in that moment, has not the Lord provided everything that you need, Christian, to worship Him in the midst of the storm, through the storm, uh, knowing that even if you die in the midst of that storm, He'll bring you through death to enjoy eternal life on the other side. And even if He doesn't provide those things that you pray for that are oftentimes wants, not really needs, that we're asking for, He'll give you exactly what you need to worship Him, to obey Him, and to walk by faith. He may not give you everything you want or you think you need to be able to enjoy this life as you want to enjoy it or as I want to enjoy it, but He'll give you everything you need to worship Him in that moment. Everything that you need. It's so easy for me to want to believe the prosperity gospel and, and to think that if I'll just do a little, if I'll just pray a little bit harder, if I'll just really mean it when I pray it, then the Lord will give me those things. If I just give a little bit extra, if I just serve a little bit more, if I just do a little bit of that, then my earthly need, let's not fall into the trap. 
it sounds good for a moment. But what Christ has given us here sounds good for eternity. It, it is something that we can found our lives on for forever and forever. And we're going to have an opportunity to, to remember that. Just like the people of Israel had the Passover meal to remember uh, the Lord's provision for them and His deliverance out of Egypt. The Lord Jesus, uh, potentially another year later, chronologically, at the next uh, Passover, um, the Lord Jesus was going to be eating another meal uh, with His disciples, more bread, and, and at this time more of a feast. And he would take that bread and he would break that bread and, and say that this was to be eaten in remembrance of him. In remembrance of, yes, the salvation of old that God brought his people out of Egypt and provided them uh, for them in the, in the wilderness. But even more so because Jesus is the better provider, the better deliverer, the better Moses, the better bread, all of those things. Jesus is saying, this bread is to be eaten in remembrance of me. And so we as a church, as Christians, we're going to stand together. We're going to come forward together. We're going to break a little, a morsel, um, as, as just a, a taste and as just a remembrance of Jesus who has provided for everyone of our eternal needs, who has um, provided eternal life for us. For He alone gave His own body gave and shed His own blood for the forgiveness of sins for all who would believe. And so, as one act of application for this story and in the coming weeks in, this, in John chapter 6, we're just going to continually Eat a, eat a morsel of bread and, and drink a cup of juice that will remind us that Jesus is the bread of life and, and that Jesus' blood gives us life and washes away our sins. We're going to be eating of this Lord's Supper for the next few weeks together as, as a reminder. But I want to encourage you, if you um, have really only been looking to the Lord Jesus to provide for your earthly needs uh, or uh, to make this life better or to deliver you out of this earthly storm. I pray that the Lord would do that for you. Um, but let me tell you that even if he doesn't do for you in the way that you pray and ask for him to do, let me, know, let, let me tell you that he's done something even more so for you. He's provided a way for you to be forgiven of your sin against God. To be saved, not just from whatever earthly struggles you face, but from the eternal struggle you, you face when you stand before God. Because as he said in John chapter 5, uh, there is a time coming when he will come to judge. That's the, that's the good news of the gospel that I have for you. That while this earth may still uh, you, you may still find lack and you may still find want and neediness and storms in this life Jesus has provided for you. This is the good news that I had to offer uh, an unbeliever yesterday at Healthy Kids Day. Uh, a sweet young lady who, who 
in, in broken English and my broken Spanish, just tried to, I tried to point her to Christ Jesus. Because she said to me, literally, if I follow Jesus, life gets better. And I wanted to say yes. I wanted to say yes. But I didn't want to leave her thinking that the prosperity gospel, and then she go away having believed in Jesus and everything crushed on top of her, never wanting Jesus again. So I looked her in the eye and I told her what I believed to be the truth. He won't make everything in this life better, but he's made a way for you to have eternal life with him forever. That's all I got. And if you come to that place this morning, then trust him. Trust him to make eternal life secure for you today. And Christian, take that gospel, the true gospel, to the world and share that with them. Don't share the false prosperity gospel or any other false gospel with the people because it doesn't save. Only Jesus saves. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to hold fast to the gospel, not any other false gospel. Would you help us share the true gospel with those who need it? Those like Biana. Lord, would you help us to persevere by faith in Jesus Christ, who though we look to to meet our earthly needs and to calm uh, our earthly storms, we know that you've given us something better in the midst of those needs and those storms, and it's yourself. Your very presence with us. You promise that you are with us to the end of the age, for we have received you and believed in you. And God, I pray that if there's someone here who is yet to receive you, to believe you, as the only prophet worth worshiping, for you are the Son of God who died and rose from the dead, that they would trust you today. And Lord Jesus, as we remember you through this bread and this cup this morning, may we remember that you have paid it all, that you have made a way, that you have secured eternal life for those who have believed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.